Folks, this season of Florida State football could go one of two ways, depending on which version of the Seminoles you get. Fortunately, we've already seen both versions, so we're going to look back to look forward and see what the best of this team could look like, as well as what the worst of this team could look like here on Locked on Seminoles. You are Locked on Seminoles, your daily podcast on the Florida State Seminoles, part of the Locked on Podcast Network, your team every day. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Locked on Seminoles, your favorite daily Florida State talk show with your favorite Florida State talk people. I'm Max, that's Drake, two Florida State alumni, lifelong fans of the program, and now a combined four years of journalism with like a somewhat lowercase J covering the team. We talk Florida State every single day during the season and three times a week during the offseason, but our offseason is much shorter than the actual offseason that we're having to endure. So thank you for being here. It's nice to be back from vacation. I was gone for a week uh, and I missed all of you greatly. Uh, Y'all coming back day after day lets us do what we love. And that's talk about the team that all of us enjoy watching on the gridiron. So thank you for being here. Uh, we are pushing for 1200 subscribers, but our ultimate goal in the short term is 1500. So be part of the army, be part of the movement, please hit that subscribe on YouTube as a way to let us know that you're here with us because we are here for you three days a week. Drizzy, I think today is going to be a really good episode, man. As I mentioned, there there was a lot that happened last year. Um, I, I think that we look back and we see five wins and it kind of sucks. And, you know, you go into anything, especially on social media, and it's like, what would you compare? What would you compare Florida State social media this offseason to? Like, um, that's a very damn hard question to answer primarily because it feels like it's been nothing sort of basically just non, non ending turmoil and just pain and suffering. But then also you have, you know, off season we recruiting wise, we're getting these big landings. Like today, we just landed Roger Kearney, the offensive lineman out of orange park when the kid actually was still officially visiting Florida. So we have little bright spots like that. So it's a little bit of a mixed bag overall. Yeah, and, and the general attitude has been really interesting, right? Like, like FSU Twitter right now feels like a divorce where, like, with someone's second wife, where the first wife gets to be the judge. Like, it's chaos. I mean, y'all are like, you know, the opinions are over here. You know, Mike Norvell's this, Mike Norvell's that. No, it's because of this. No, this is how much money. We, it's nuts. But that's not what we're here to talk about. We're here to remind you guys that that wasn't all formed in a single moment. And the reason I think, Drake, there's been so much fiery debate this offseason about what's wrong with the program, what's right with the program, is because last season wasn't like a cut and dry. It wasn't just like, hey, the team sucks, or hey, the team didn't try, or hey, we had a terrible, we had terrible players, so we never had a shot to win it. Like, there's so many things that went into the season that we're now still trying to make sense of and still trying to extrapolate out to next week or to next year. So in that vein, um, yeah, we just, we thought we would look at last season game by game, uh, hopefully doing, we're going to try to do what three, three games this episode. I'd, I'd like to get to Notre Dame, uh, the unfortunate debacle that was Jacksonville state and, um, and then get to wake forest and, and talk about, Hey, what was our initial reaction at the time? 
look at the game a little bit, right? Like look at some numbers, see what actually happened, a little refresher on how the season went. Um, and then look at like, hey, what what ended up carrying through the season? Like what, you know, little things at the time, maybe one play that, okay, we saw that bad thing or good thing happened a lot more. And from doing that, what can we extrapolate to next year? So, um, Drake, you ready to, ready to hop into this thing or, or ready to go? Let's roll. All right, man. So, folks, we're going to start with Notre Dame. Again, the point of this is not to give you a breakdown of the game. If you're a fan, you probably watch the game. It's to kind of refresh ourselves on the season. So, um, Notre Dame was the first game of the year. It was a was it Monday night? Sunday night? It was Sunday night. We flew Sunday out night. Monday the next day, and we all our voices were gone, so we didn't have an episode for two days because we couldn't talk. That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Players weren't the only ones that got banged up during that game. Um, it was my daughter's first football game in Dope Campbell, but the important thing was we came into this game with high expectations. Um, we felt like it, it was it was one we could get away with. We could steal this one from a good say, Notre Dame the, team. It would have been the first game in a while that a game we were supposed to win, we lose, but it's a game that where we should have lost, but we felt that we could win, just steal one for once. Exactly. And Notre Dame at the time, I believe, was uh, maybe number four, number five, something like that, top five team. Um, they were coming to Joe Campbell, blah, blah, blah. We didn't really believe in Jack Cohen, and we were almost right. Uh, the end result was a 41-38 overtime loss by, by um, – for the Florida State Seminoles. Notre Dame walked out with a victory. But, you know, when we look at this by the numbers, and we'll get to this in a moment after initial reactions, but Florida State had a 55% post-game win expectancy in this game. I mean, by the numbers that occurred on the field, we should have won that game. And that brings us into the instant reactions because, Drake, I, I think at the time, that pretty much sums up what your feelings were. Yeah, I was pissed. Um, and Dave's not here, but I think it was me and him were just so – we were quiet just with the fact that we probably should have won that game. We saw like there are certain aspects of the game where we'll touch on a little bit more as the episode goes on that. We just felt that Norvell kind of outcoached himself overall, just by basically making some weird decisions. I know you and Cam were a little more like we saw it was a lot of fight. We haven't seen in a very long time, but I think it was more like immediately reaction wise. I was furious to be probably put it the best way possible because that game was very easily attainable to win. Yeah. To put it bluntly, you and I were at opposite ends of the spectrum after this game because I think you were looking at it more of what you wanted. And what you wanted was a win against a top five team to open the season. And that was a valid, that was a valid, I don't mean to diminish like, oh, you were just being Pollyanna. No, no, you, you that was a valid desire. I mean, we had the team to win. You used that word too. Remember that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. This, the, stats, the stats show we could have won. I think I looked at it more of, that game felt like the start of the Norvell era because the season before had been the COVID year. And I looked at it more comparative, comparatively to, okay, how did Willie's era start? And I think that when we look at key plays from that game and you look at the touchdown to baby Gronk, their tight end, we got him on what fourth and two, I, right? Cause it, it was what, it was like third and one or third and two, we get a sack and it's like, mm -hmm. or maybe we stuffed him at the line, whatever. They, they don't move the ball much. So it's fourth and short. And they get that touchdown where no one touches. Um, what's I, I literally just know Michael Mayer. Baby it was a, it Michael was a, Mayer. It was a third and two. I think it was like in, like yep. inside the forty and literally. No, it was, 40 it, it was a fourth down because we stuffed them on third. Oh, you're right. Right, it was a fourth down. You're right. So it was it like was, it, because it was Akeem Dent came up, leveled the running back. That's right. Just nails him at the line. I'm like, dude, that's some Florida State defense. That's some Hampson Asroldean stuff. Let's go. And then they give up the touchdown streaking outside, and all I could picture it was like a. 
it was like a visualized thing in a movie when he was running to the end zone his jersey turned red and or turned white and maroon his helmet turned maroon and orange and all i could picture was that virginia tech game mm-hmm. and it was like here we go again yeah you know you look tough for five minutes because remember virginia tech same thing we got them i think to third down they converted a short one I'd have to look it up. And then we got him to like another third down. And then we just blown coverage. It was over the middle to a receiver, not a tight end, but blown coverage. Uh, the safeties were looking at each other like, what the heck? And then the game, you know, we all know what happened, 28 to three. So seeing us blow a play against Notre Dame to make it 7-0 and then come right back and keep fighting against a team who, again, beat us by 25 the year before was like, I think to me, I just felt like this team, regardless of record, will be different this year. I can agree with that. And the one thing that we were actually, it took us a little bit too, if I basically kind of be like, okay, we can finally win this game. Because if I remember correctly, the first two offensive drives, we had a total of negative 20 yards. And I think it was just three straight three and outs overall. And we were kind of like basically just dead in the water up until we saw the Jay Sean Corbin run that basically just electrified the entire stadium for almost 90 yards. And that's kind of when we saw that, okay, we can win this game. And then we saw the taking the lead like, oh, this is kind of feels it feels different overall. Yeah, and that run was so important because I felt like when Mayer scored that touchdown, that was a blown coverage. It was a lack of accounting for an assignment on what was probably should have been a run play. They sold out. They made a mistake. Jay Sean doing that run was like that was schemed well. It was also blocked well. Like that was a football play. Everyone did their jobs. The offensive line, both, you know, you had two guys pulling to the right side. They blocked it up. It wasn't some fluky, like, you know, uh, I don't, I'm not taking this away from the guy. I know it was a great play, but it wasn't Lawrence Toa Philly's touchdown against Clemson. It was Mm -hmm. a man on man. We blocked it up. Our running back accelerated through them. They couldn't catch him. We scored it. Like we can hang with these dudes. And it it just, yeah, that, that, that was my feelings of the game. I want to get into um, speaking of that play and the the Michael Meyer play, uh, I want to get into what we saw in that game that ended up carrying through the season and and kind of what we can take from that game and and look at next year with. But first, I got to tell the folks about Bet Online, which is, I mean, y'all know already, right? Like Bet Online, it's the number one source for all your betting needs. It's it's where you can find all the latest sports developments because they've got info, so that way you can be educated when you're placing your bets. So betonline.net remains the best spot for all of your sports scores, podcasts, and news this season. And it's the fastest and easiest way to check in on all of your favorite sports and events, including MMA, boxing, golf, and other year-round sports that we all like to, you know, check in on from time to time. So go to betonline.net today or use your mobile device to learn more about the trends in action. BetOnline, where the game starts. Yeah, so Driz, I want to I, I want to get into what from the Notre Dame game carried through the rest of the season and what we could kind of extrapolate to next year, uh, and then we'll we'll touch on we'll, we'll move on to Jacksonville State and in Wake Forest. Um, but first, folks, if you're still here, thank you for being here. We love you. You mean the world to us, and we hope you keep coming back because we are only. Can you believe this, man? We are two months. As y'all are listening to this, I guess two months and a day, right? That August 28th is our first, or 27th is our first game. I think we're like six days away, yeah, overall. Yeah, I think we're right at two months. Here it is. Yeah, it's the 27th, ours birthday. Uh, so yeah, as y'all are listening to this Monday morning, we are two months away from opening the season against Duquesne, and that is incredibly, incredibly exciting stuff. So Drake, 
what was the what were the things like let's just we don't have to stay too too prescriptive and formulaic here but like what did you see in the game that good and bad felt like carried through to the rest of the season I mean, the bad thing was, like, probably when this offensive line is hurt just overall throughout the rest of the season is that we didn't have the depth to compete with that at all. And if I remember correctly, I think Maurice Smith started the game, even though we were kind of hearing different reports or different outlets stating that he most likely would have been out due to injury. And you saw the first few series, and he, you saw the offense struggle because of the offensive line overall just wasn't be able to. He couldn't snap and guard at the same time because he was basically just super banged up. And we saw that Dill Gibbons went out for two series because he got injured toward in that game as well. So the same thing with Robert Scott as well, too. So you're, you saw overall that the offensive line depth wasn't there. And that's kind of a good sign for this upcoming season because now we basically have – we almost have a three deep across the offensive line now, which is actually pretty solid. And then another thing I saw was basically the explosive plays that we saw with Lawrence Tofili in that game. Treshawn Ward, they said that was his breaking out party. We asked, like, who the hell was that guy? And yep. I was like, is that the PWO? And then he – they someone that this kid's going to be pretty good for a pretty long while while he's here. So it, it was basically the coming out part of a on war, which is a good thing. Yeah, I, I think that's that all makes sense. And and for me, I think what we saw in this game that carried through to the season is, A, we saw the identity of this team. We went into this game thinking we, again, could beat this team. We could be better this year. We won't win three games. But we I don't know if we knew how we were going to do it. We just knew that we should be better. And, and in this game, you know, when I look at the the advanced numbers, right, and I look at our rushing predicted points added, we had almost a full point added of 0.989 uh, predicted points added in the first, <clears throat> excuse me, in the first quarter for rushing. Uh, and our total for the game was 0.29. To put that in perspective, Notre Dame's predicted points added rushing, their best quarter was 0.341, so lower than our lowest quarter and their total was negative 0.12 so like we really saw the identity of this team like this is going to be a rushing team because we also saw on passing downs our success rate was 29 or 36 percent. so yeah um we saw that this would be a running team and that carried through for the rest of the year like when this team could establish the run could have a couple home run shots they did pretty well when they were having to get into a lot of passing downs a lot of third and longs um they didn't do so well. And obviously that's common sense, but you know, we saw it early in the year. And and the worst part is, Drake, you look at the average start, and we start an average of 73.6 yards away from our own end or from you know the opponent's end zone. Yeah. So you can have that lack of success on third and longs, but then you better A avoid third and longs and B start a little better at field position. We started with bad field position and gotten a lot of third and longs, and that's what killed us all year last year. And we gave the opposing team probably a lot easier, a lot shorter of a distance to travel to actually score points, which we saw heavily and probably in the last game that we're going to be reviewing today, which is the Wake Forest game overall. And yeah. with the passing stat, yeah, if you look at the numbers overall, um, I did not know that Jack Cohn passed for double what both McKenzie and Jordan Travis passed for the entire game, which that was something that we were both saying that Jack Cohn was not going to be that great. And then the man threw for 370 yards and four TDs. So that was something that we were both heavily wrong about. Yeah, but, 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 but yes, yes. And right. Two of those were the screen pass to Kyron Williams, where he ran for like 70 yards and that touchdown to Michael Mayer. Like those two passes alone were two touchdowns for like 130 yards or 125 like 90 yards. yards. No, I'm saying the, the one was 70 and then the Michael Mayer one was like 40. Or oh, it was 55. I could double check that. Yeah. The, the like, screen pass was 55. Yeah. Because yeah, it, it set up. Okay. It set up. What was, the, what was the mayor? Oh, it did. 41, oh, never mind. Then. 41. Okay. So like well, never mind yeah. then. 
Yeah, well, good for him. Uh, Jack Cohen was kind of underrated all year, but I want to make one more point that we saw that carried forward into the rest of the season, and that was the field position battle. Not just starting poorly, but giving up bad field position. So uh, when you look at these numbers, Notre Dame's average expected points due to field position per drive, because average, right, was 1.6. Ours was 1.15. There's typically about 14 drives in a football game per team. So the difference between what the the number of points more that they should have scored based on field position was 0.45 per drive. You look at that over, let's say, 22 drives for both teams because maybe there's some slowdown. That's 9.9 points. You look at over a full 14 drives per team over 28. That's 12.6 points based on field position alone. And we saw that consistently throughout the year where we just shot ourselves in the foot all day by not being able to flip the field, not being able to make teams, you know, work with a short field or work with a long field, not giving ourselves a short field. And it, it came back to bite us a lot. And I, I mean, I guess it, it, you could say that's takeaway. You could say that's extrapolation of next year, but that's something that's got to be fixed on this team. I mean, if we can't win field position battles, we aren't going to win a lot of football games, plain and simple. But I, I think overall to sum it up from the Notre Dame game last year is like, it, it was probably our team at its best. Yes, we lost, but that was besides, I would say what, maybe then for you, I mean, you tell me, besides the North Carolina game, that was the best team I saw all season. Miami. See, I, I don't know though, because I feel like we just, Miami, we kind of, we didn't play as complete of a game. Like I felt like we played a great first half. Oh, see, and like, then we kind of. That's kind of where I, I can kind of agree with you a little bit because I think we played the first half. I think we just tried not to lose in the second half. But yeah. Yeah. But Notre Dame felt like a complete game. Um, and also, I don't know, would we, I, I, you know, I know we've, we've belabored this game for a while, but like, we'd also be remiss if we didn't bring up, like, I, I wonder, I wonder if it was a Pyrrhic victory of sorts. I wonder how much McKenzie Milton having some success ruined games like Jacksonville State, which we'll get to in just a moment, and Louisville, where it kind of let the coaching staff not really see McKenzie for what he was and they didn't fully commit to the Jordan Travis train yet, which is, I mean, I think that's a big reason we lost the Jacksonville state game, frankly. Um, the one thing, and then since now we're going to be doing Jacksonville state, I think more of the thing, the, like that's the game you kind of want to put them in for the entire game, just to see kind of what you have. And honestly, with all the warning signs you saw there, like the wide receivers didn't catch the ball. Um, Keishon Helton, as you, as you discussed immensely, that one drop probably was foreshadowed for the actual outcome. You saw the lack of effort on defense. You saw a defensive coordinator playing defense to hold them dependent to a field goal, not doing, not predicting for a Hail Mary. And then you saw the uh, basically an entire offensive staff trying to play with their food when they know damn well they don't have a team that's good enough to play with anyone's food right now. Yeah. So, so that, that, that's my big takeaway from it. Really, all I need to say about Jacksonville State is, it was with two things. One, they were they were playing on credit. And what I mean by that is, you know, like the 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 artist Kanye West said, right? He he's got a habit of spending it before he gets it. That's what they were doing. They were like expecting a blowout. So they started out when it was zero zero, playing like they'd already blown the team out. When it's like, no, no, guys, get to forty five to zero and like kick the field goals, man. Just yep. And them. then and then the second takeaway, because you know, I'm not even going to talk about what happened during the game. I mean, we had an 88% win probability and all that. We should have won, but we blew it. 
but it did give me some confidence in the coaching staff when I saw the UMass game later in the season and realized they learned from their mistake. Like that was my biggest issue with the Taggart era is it felt like watching the Virginia game in 2018 or yeah, 2018 when they tried to do that wild cam thing at the, at the oh, goal 20, line, that was 2019, 2019. I'm sorry. When they tried to do that wild cam thing at the goal line without telling anyone what was happening and it was a pass and this, and it, and it blew the Virginia game. That was literally the same shit that happened against Virginia tech an entire year and a half before that, when they got down to the three yard line and weren't able to score. So like, it was good to see, okay, you guys made as big of a mistake as any coaching staff that the school's ever made. But when I saw them do it the right way against UMass, it was like, at least you freaking learned from it. Like, Maybe there, maybe there's some hope for the staff going forward. Maybe uh, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt for that because that's kind of like a bare minimum thing for me. Just putting up almost like sixty or whatever we did against UMass because that was the worst team in the country by far. Um, but yeah, with Jacksonville State, I mean, I that was the day that like Adam Fuller kind of solidified to me that he was just not the coordinator for the spot. That was the day also that I didn't understand the play calling, and that's where I've been basically. I was worried that the play call and decision-making from the Notre Dame game would rear its ugly head again there, and it did, except it was for a different reason. And that's kind of where I lost faith in the staff for majority of the preseason. Now it's a lot more, a little bit trying to be a little more positive heading into this year. We see what Alex Atkins is doing overall with the offensive line. Norvell also, too, finally, finally putting all of his eggs in the Jordan Travis basket, for better or for worse. So, uh, yeah, and then also I lost my win total bet. So that's also why this game kind of sticks out to me, too. Yeah, and it stopped us from going bowling. I mean, there's a, there's a lot to take away from it. But what I extrapolate to next season is uh, hopefully they learn their lesson and go out there and like get up 28-0 on Duquesne and then and then practice stuff. Um, but real quick, I want to get to the Wake Forest game. And looking at the Wake Forest game, I think you know there, there's the short version, the long version of the Wake Forest game, right? It's like one, yes, we lost Wake Forest 35-14. Yes, Wake Forest had an 84% win expectancy, post-game win expectancy. Yes, our our numbers were just awful everywhere that you look. Um, but I think what I took away from it was like, that's what happens when Jordan Travis doesn't play well. Like, that's just, it just showed me like how much you need him to be your starting quarterback. He He played 33% of your offensive snaps. And it's like, you know, Jacksonville State was like, man, maybe, I don't know. And then that was the moment of like, yeah, when McKenzie Milton throws 64% of your total passes, you're not going to win football games. And yeah, that was yeah. that was my big takeaway from that. Like the minute it ended, I was like, why are we still putting McKenzie on the field? I understand injury happens. But I will say in that moment, that was the first time I really started to question personnel decisions by Mike Norvell at quarterback because – I, I just, I give Dave so much crap about like, you know, he just likes to play with the shiny new toy, but like why Chubba Purdy didn't go in in that game when McKenzie just clearly wasn't the guy against Jacksonville state, just had a little bit of success against Notre Dame for like one drive that Jordan Travis finished for him. And you're like, you have this kid on the sidelines. You, you really like, and I think what I extrapolate to next year is it goes into the same mentality of like, we've talked about regularly. Does Mike Norvell know how serious of a situation he is in right now? Because to me, a coach trying to win or not trying to win, but realizing like you really sh can't afford to lose the very many games this year would not have rode with McKenzie that whole game when it was clear that it wasn't working. So I think it was more that how we talked about before the play calling, the designs I actually were in the Jacksonville State game that were just you wouldn't use that. 
I think that's kind of why they gave Mackenzie Milton the game, the start actually with Wake Forest. I was at the camp also that that Wake, Mackenzie Milton's game against Wake Forest is going to be the first, like, I'm sorry, they're going to be the last time, kind of last chance he would get to be a starter here at, at FSU, which you found out wouldn't <laughs> that wouldn't be the case until Louisville the next week. And also Jordan Travis was hurt. Uh, Chubb Purdy, I think, was still coming back from the, uh, not the collarbone issue, but I, know, I didn't know he did in, get injured again actually during that spring as well. So it was like you gotta ha- you kind of have to roll with someone that, when Mackenzie Mill was, was doing the uh, the no huddle, the, the hurry up offense, he actually was successful. The only issue we had with this game, because I remember this game, I thought we had lost it in the first quarter. And it was, remember, do you remember the first play of that game by Wake Forest? No, I really don't. So Sam Hartman throws a pick at the midfield. Sydney Williams picks, picks out the ball. Two okay. plays later, Jason Corbin gets about eight yards, tries to reach out for two more, and then immediately fumbles the ball. And this is mm. something that basically just encapsulated the entire season with me for at least the first half when we went on, went on a four-game losing streak or that it just felt that the team was pressing extremely hard they had come off the heels of basically you know a roller coaster ride the high of Notre Dame and then the absolute lowest of lows when came Jacksonville State and I think for this game in the Louisville game it just felt that the entire staff had no idea what the hell they wanted to do whether it be personnel whether it be play calling too and we didn't see them kind of like rectify that until the win after Syracuse. Because even the Syracuse game, you watched the majority of that, it just felt like they were just trying to hold on for dear life. And that's what it felt like with this game. Because they're tied to 14. It felt like a lot worse because that was a five turnover game. So, Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. And I think that you look at the um, you look at the run pass breakdown with this um, in, in this game. And it's like, yeah, you're right. They, 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 they were very like balanced, but not in a good way. <laughs> it was like, they had a, they had established this identity as like, okay, we're probably a running team, especially when our quarterback gets hot and can run. And then I think you're right. They, they were sort of in panic mode and they're like, uh, I don't know what we do here. Maybe kind of throw it. You, you talk about McKenzie being good and, and, um, and no huddle. And I think that was true to an extent, but it, it it's almost like it's it happens a lot in football right something's working then the coaching staff kind of gets away from it and then people go why didn't you do more of it And it's like well there's also the ball they they also know how long it can work for so i think mckenzie was good at that like okay i mean that was also because remember he didn't have to throw the ball that far in those plays (laughs) we're being completely honest here and now like if everything was down the middle or short little outs he was money with that and then i don't know why we get back to that play and also remember mckenzie millen was dealing with the the foot issue for the entire season that you know wasn't discussed that all often that much. I don't know why he's keep you know rolling with him while he's still like you know I guess you know the adrenaline is feeling through that. But if you keep playing slowly and playing with him, it's like it's that's going to wear and tear on you, especially him. Yeah, and and I think for me, what was frustrating about the McKenzie Milton experiment, even moving into the Louisville game, is um, it, it just showed a lack of evaluation of talent ability from a staff that really has been heralded as great evaluators of talent because. I, I understand your point, and I don't think it's fully invalid of like, oh, it was maybe his last chance. But like, as a coach, we're we're not coaches, but as a coach, your job was to know in practice if he, if he should even get that last chance. And I don't know what they could have seen from him in practice to justify it because the issues with McKenzie, it was a his foot, but his arm strength just wasn't there. He could not stretch the field. And the minute you found out, like, the minute a team found that out, it was over. And I think that there was almost this narrative. No, no, I don't think. Let me rephrase this. I know for a fact there was this narrative, especially among us, the the fans, that I think pervaded into the coaching staff of, well, 
McKenzie's your passer. Jordan's your runner. So if you need, like you said, the game plan, what it calls for, if you need the passer, put McKenzie Milton out there, except McKenzie Milton couldn't throw any ball that had to go more than 12 yards in the air successfully. So he wasn't your passer. Tate Rodemaker was probably the better passer last year. If you really were like, we have yeah, to sit in the pocket and throw the it. Team. The team. Well, uh, that too. Yeah. I, I'm not saying he was literally the better nah, passer. I'm, I'm yeah. just saying it, it wasn't this like duplicitous, multi-headed, oh, we've got one good passer, one good runner. It was like, we've got one decent quarterback and another guy that's like less than decent, but the less than decent guy relies on throwing more. Like it, it just, it, it wasn't what they thought it was. And it, Wake Forest really made me question like does this staff actually watch practice or is Mike Norvell still remembering who McKenzie Milton was four years ago when he blew him out at Memphis not blew him out I guess it was a close game but they scored what what was it like 62 to 50 that huge crazy it was, high it was, game it was a had. lot I think with McKenzie though like Mike was able to execute his playbook a lot more like open up a lot more pages a lot more plays with McKenzie were they effective as you can see from the games we're discussing right now they were not, especially with the Wake Forest game in Louisville. But also, I think overall, with that's the that's basically been the thing that we've kind of discussed overall. And I know you're going to hate what I'm about to say too, is that Mike Norvell has has had little to no faith in Jordan, and that's also been something that's been with Jordan as a QB since his time at Louisville, since his time with Willie Taggart, since his time also with Ken Abrazo as the offensive coordinator. So you got to have the kind of like I get that you want to run what you want to run, and you, if you get basically been thrown to the fire, you want to do it by on your own terms. You don't have that option here, especially when your option that you think you know is the right option was performing so poorly as much as you want it to work out. That reaction by me was me trying not to interrupt you and let you finish because I think that is an incredibly salient point that I hadn't thought of was I, I think you nailed it. I think that's exactly what it was. And I hadn't really thought of it in those terms of, Mike Norvell looked at his playbook and said, who's the better QB to run these plays? Which is like, yeah, but what you're talking about is maybe, let's say 100% is a perfect game, right? Just just let's do a percentage. Maybe Jordan Travis's successor is 25 and McKenzie's is 30, but if you'd actually like taken five minutes and designed a game plan for Jordan Travis, look at the UNC game, he might have been 80% successful on that, and then who gives a shit? Who cares that McKenzie Milton is 30% successful on that? So I think that's a really insightful point because it takes us to the larger point of what I constantly hammer Mike Norvell for. He is stubborn as hell at all these internal promotions is kind of the, the has been the main marker of that, that I've, I've pointed to, but I think what you just said kind of hits the nail on the head. It's like he would rather run his offense to the detriment of the win-loss column, then say, well, hang on. What talent do we have on the roster and how can we best use them, right? It's the it's the taking the best player at a position of need approach at the draft versus taking the best player on the board, I think, is is what we saw. And I think that that's, that's going to be something we're going to have to watch this season. Like, is Mike Norvell going to try to just be Mike Norvell or is he going to come out here and run an offense designed around the pieces he has and say, look, the goal is to win eight or nine games, not to run whatever offense I cooked up five years ago that I've decided I have a dogmatic devotion to. 
I mean, yeah, that's how you see most. There's a reason why coaches get how far they do because basically what they do works for a very long time. The only uh, thing that has to be different is you see certain coaches, you know, get fired or they get promoted or get better jobs is because they're able to adapt. Uh, Something we said at UFC every single day was be water, adapt. And you need to be able to not be the best at what you do, but basically be able to, I guess, recognize your surroundings, recognize your situation, and be able to basically put yourself in the best position to succeed. And with Norvell, we're going to have to see with that overall. This is also probably the last game that we saw, the discussions that basically Kane Dillingham was the primary play caller. Because if I remember correctly, for Louisville, for the next time we're on, Louisville was the game we saw Mike Norvell with the play sheet, actually on the sideline, walking out back and forth. So this also could be a thing that we see because maybe Norvell gave Dillingham way, way too many options. Maybe he gave them way too much leeway with calling some plays because how many times have we said overall with Kendall Browles ran the ball more under Taggart, Taggart might still be here. So that's something that we're going to actually watch for the upcoming season because the Wake Forest game, that was probably the, that was the worst game last year. Just basically just from a pure game planning standpoint, because remember the, uh, the man coverage, uh, discussion by Kane Dillingham, the one time in which they were supposed to coach speak <laughs> actually from either of them. No, no, please. So I was, I was admittedly at a wedding during that game. I watched the condensed game today. And oh, went we, back to they it. said, we did not know that uh Wake Forest's um, defenders would run that much man coverage with corners. That's and, right. And it's like, and, well, okay. Do you have, you don't have a man beater package? <laughs> like, yeah. No, it's true though. But that's like, but that in in that, and then we'll we'll let the folks go on about their day because we love them for being here. But we know they got stuff to do. Um, that was another big issue of last year, right? Getting away from the coaches, you just couldn't win one on ones. Like you, like at a certain point, you have to be able to play sandlot football where our eleven guys are just gonna just gonna find a way to move the ball against your eleven. Obviously, you call plays. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying like when. All of your receivers are getting out covered by their DBs and all of your line is getting out out rushed by their D line. Like you can only do so much. There's only so many tricky things you can do before. Like you eventually have to be able to block someone. You have to get open and you have to be able to catch the ball or you're not going to win football games. There's a reason why your wide receivers and your defensive backs talk the most whenever you're watching them play. Cause there's probably the one position on two positions on the team where you're going man up mono on mono on one person. And I can point exactly to how much better I am to that person. And that's why they kind of have, I know people say it's a diva mentality. Me personally, I want to talk in mad smack to the person across from you. I want you to basically say that I'm your daddy at the end of the day. And that's a position that you want that the most from. And we didn't have that sort of man beater last year. Man, other side, I think Malik McLean registered like a 75% like success rate in men coverage. The other three top receivers had a 23, a 29 and a 33. And that's something you don't want to see moving forward and that's something we won't see moving forward this year because of the options that we got and after the transfer portal and remember folks we're looking back right like like drake just said looking forward i do think that that's not going to be as much of a problem this year but that was a problem last year so let us know in the comments below you know do you like do you like living and looking back at the past does it just make you sad we hope that we brought you some good insights some good takes and a few things that you can take forward and feel a little smarter about florida state football today again we'll be here three times this week at least maybe we'll even stop by for a fourth i don't know but whether or not make sure you're subscribed hit the bell that way your notifications are on and then you will know the minute we drop episodes i'm max that was drake and this was locked on seminoles Take care, everybody. And at least we're not Florida. They are getting dragged.